Welcome to the Soul Talks podcast, where we equip pastors, leaders, and other men and women in ministry to thrive with Jesus in their life and leadership. Now let's join Bill and Christy Galtier, doctors in psychology, spiritual directors, and founders of Soul Shepherding. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Soul Talks with Bill and Christy Galtier. We have a special guest with us today, Rich Velotis. He is the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multiracial church in Queens, New York. And uh, Rich was born in Brooklyn there, so he has experiential knowledge that contributes to his speaking and to uh, all sorts of uh, topics related to spiritual formation and social justice. And Rich is the author of the best-selling book, The Deeply Formed Life, and the new book, Good and Beautiful and Kind. And Rich and his wife, Rosie, have two children. And Christy, we were so thankful to meet Rich at the Apprentice Gathering Conference in Wichita, Kansas last year. We were. And Rich, it was impressive to me right off the way you spoke about your wife, Rosie. I loved that. When I had asked you as we were in conversation about how you're handling the the notoriety, the success that you're having, the pressure that that puts on your soul, and you responded with great genuine answers. But one of those key things was, and my wife is incredible. She's strong and she's supportive. And I just, I loved that. I love the way it was just obvious in the way you spoke about her, your love and appreciation and recognizing what a partner she is. And I loved that. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was great to meet you both at the conference uh, and have some conversations outside of the main meeting area. But yes, Rosie is a powerhouse. And in in many ways, I I want to be like her in terms of the character and the integrity that she carries. So yeah, I am incredibly um, blessed to have her as a as a as a spouse. That's awesome. I love you saying that you want to be like Rosie, because I want to be like Christy. So <laughs> I'm sort of the uh, designer of many things in soul shepherding, but I designed things after Christy. So <laughs> this podcast is the Christy style podcast. Oh. It's conversational, it's relational, it's empathetic. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, love it. That is one of the blessings in community. We do. We we benefit from the strengths of God's image in each other, and we grow in his likeness that way as we see it manifest and we receive his love through each other. So it's a joy. Well, you really blessed us in that way at that conference. I was I was so surprised because I expected that you would just be busy and preoccupied and that you wouldn't interact with, with us and with people at the conference. And Bill and I were just so personally touched and blessed by your warmth, your authenticity, your interest in us, shocked us the way you came up when Bill was sitting at our at the book signing during the book signing, and you came up and actually had interest in in our book. And you asked about us, and you shared your life very genuinely. And it was very, very much a blessing to us personally. We thought we want to share you with our community. So thank you for that. Really, yeah, thank thank you. And uh, I look forward to even deepening our friendship here and hereafter. Thank you. I first heard about you, Rich, because your book. Um, your book on spiritual formation, the DB form life was on our son and daughter's Christmas list. And so I ordered the book and that's how, that was my first introduction 
to you. And then through Matt and going through the Soul Shepherding Institute and you speaking at his church and him also speaking so highly of you and getting to know you. So it was fun. Well, we got to meet you in person and we're excited today to share you with our community and Soul Shepherding. And we really enjoyed your book and have appreciated your work, your message, your ministry. Mm. Oh, great. And what a joy to hear that your uh, one of your children had the book on the uh, the wish list. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Delighted awesome. me too. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things you write about in Good and Beautiful and Kind is the importance of making sense of our stories. And recall you talking about that in the conference as well. And it's just so important how we find ourselves in, in God's story, and that becomes our story. And you talk about this, how it relates to identity and attachment, uh, facing the truth about ourselves and how we open up to God. And just love to hear you share more about that. Yeah, you know, I think as a follower of Jesus and as a student of the scriptures, there is something really powerful about the stories that we carry and the stories that we tell. And uh, I think the church followers of Jesus are in many ways to, to lead the way in, in story sharing and storytelling. And each one of our stories have so many layers and points of revelation that God wants to have us live into uh, and explore. Uh, and so one of my tasks as a pastor is uh, on a regular basis to help people make sense of their own stories, uh, to live reflectively. And, you know, even when I, in something very um, simple as it relates to our reactions to things, uh, there's often a story that we are telling ourselves. And this is very familiar to me because I found myself needing to practice something that I teach a lot of people uh, to do as it relates to their stories and reactions just last night. Uh, last night, at the dinner table, I asked my wife and my 13-year-old daughter, Karis, we're having a conversation about presents and uh, not Christmas gift presents, but our, our presents with one yeah. another. Yes. And uh, I asked the question, it was a dangerous question. I should not have asked it, but it was what I said, how present am I at home? And I said, on a scale of one to 10, like dad is, uh, 10 is like, wow, he's so present. One is like, where is dad? What would you get? Now, I had a number in my head. My number was eight, eight and a half. You know, I'm like, yeah. I know. And so Rosie thought about it and said, uh, I think it's I think it's five, five, five and a half. And, I, and number one, I was very defensive already. I was just like, what are you talking about? And then I asked my daughter, Karis, Karis, what do you think? And she said, yeah, dad, that sounds about right. And I found myself just very defensive, mm. very angry at that moment and reactive and I thought to myself, what, what is the story I'm telling myself right now? Mm. And it was there where I was able to just do some work in that moment and then afterwards, because I wasn't really present with them after they said that. Uh, but stories, I think that what are the stories that we tell? What are the stories that we live? Uh, these are things that matter in, uh, very much, I think, in our life with God and our life with each other. Very much. And I, I so appreciate you asking that courageous story and then sharing vulnerably with us, because I can imagine how vulnerable that felt. And I can only imagine what I would feel in your situation, but I imagine I'd feel pretty disappointed that they were rating me as a five when I've been working so hard on that, being so intentional. And obviously you, you know, the value of that and really love your, your girls. You want to be present in the home and yeah, I can understand that it would be hard, hard to receive. I love the way you did some self-reflection and noticed 
your reaction and tuned in there. And I, I imagine you received God's grace in that and affirmation of you at some point. Yeah, d- definitely. And um, I think in my own reflection and prayer and then having a follow-up conversation with them. And actually it, it got bad before it got even better this morning. Oh. I'll just tell you, that, I, this, often morning, how it goes. this is how, so this morning I, I, we're going uh, on a trip this weekend and, but I have scheduled a 9 PM Sunday night event with 13 men that I'm discipling in our church. And so that's been a good time for us to meet at 9 PM. And so we're going away. I'm seeing my parents this weekend in Florida. We're going to do something on Sunday. And I go, Oh, Rosie, by the way, um, at 9 PM on Sunday, I have this meeting there. And she kind of just said, you know what, just giving you some data. This is like, related to our previous conversation about presence. And I once again, found myself very defensive. And I said, now, wait a second. But then uh, back to my own story, I just thought, you know, I just need to sit with it. So I sat with it some more and asked for forgiveness and wanted to just grow in the grace of God. And more than anything, not being as touchy and defensive as I can be with my my wife and two children. But yeah, it's uh, it got better before it got worse, for sure. Oh, it got worse before it got better. Right. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, Chris and I have had uh, countless conversations like that around um, my working and being present to the the kids and, and to her our kids are out of the house now so now it's our, our grandkids and that's kind of easier because we get them in spurts and you can be all in for a spurt but it was quite a learning for me with young kids to learn to set boundaries on my work and ministry and uh, really try to be present in the home and I, I think that it's like I need continual reminders from you, like like you're describing there, Rich. Yes, but but on my side, there's also an opportunity for me to look at the story that's going on in my head because I often can get into the story of I'm rejected, take it personally. Other people are more important to you than mm-hmm. than me or the kids. Mm-hmm. I can start to even overprotect you in ministry and and work yeah. because of that because I don't want us to be needy and what he's doing is so good and I don't want to get in the way. It's so beautiful how you love people and how God's using you. So it goes both ways. And that's what really helps us is if we're both taking responsibility, Mm -hmm. like you're modeling, Rich, to really tune in and say, okay, what is my story in this? Where are my wounds getting tapped up into? And where am I getting triggered? And instead to stop, to pray, to reconnect to God, our, our source of love, his love, his delight in us, where we can receive his grace and then we can have that calm presence that you write about to be able to really share honestly and openly and vulnerably. And, and then we're able to not be defensive and really will good for each other and communicate, hear each other. And the Lord lights the way for us. So well said. Thank you. Yeah. Tell us more about calm presence. I think in your book, good, beautiful, and kind, it's like my favorite message. And, And I probably, because I experienced that from you and uh, meeting you and then in, in your talk and some of the stories you told, even, even about your relationship with Rosie and then some of the things you shared about in the middle of the pandemic and all the social unrest. I mean, right there in your multiracial church there and community in, in Queens, New York and all that was going on and, and, and 
having uh, people on opposite sides of issues, like this person voted for Trump, this person voted for Biden and their leaders in your church, and you're having having them do a forum and, and have a conversation like, oh my gosh, I talk to pastors all the time. Who does this? And, <laughs> you know, you did this and, you know, bringing that calm presence of Jesus into this for your people to, to, to talk about the issues. I, I just, it was, it really made an impression on me. Yeah, you know, the, the language of calm presence uh, and I've tried to use this more so than um, non-anxious presence, uh, because although I, I believe in the language of non-anxious presence, I think it can communicate that there is a possibility to live beyond anxiety and the totality of that. And to be anxious is to be human. Uh, uh, anxiety is this kind of automatic response to a real or perceived threat. And, uh, you know, if I'm walking down Queens Boulevard here in front of our church and there's a dog, a pit bull that's out there and it's chasing me, uh, this is not a time to be contemplative as much as I love contemplative spirituality. This is a time where my anxiety says you need to get out of here. And so in some ways, anxiety is a gift uh, to help us name danger and, and protect ourselves from harm. Uh, but when our lives are now marked by that. Uh, and that becomes the default mode of our very existence, I think that's when we get in a lot of trouble. And so calm presence is this, I think, a growing ability uh, to be present uh, to ourselves, to be present to God, and to be present to one another in times of high anxiety. And this is the language out of family systems theory of, you know, differentiation of what does it mean to remain close and curious to God and to myself and to others without needing to fuse into them or cut off from them without needing to disappear uh, or at the same time uh, avoid. And I think part, at least in my own journey, uh, the calm presence that I try to cultivate um, doesn't mean that there's nothing going on on the inside. Um, but it's my attempt uh, to be as courageous and curious with others and with myself. And so on the outside, it might look one way, but on the inside, I'm probably experiencing it differently. But it's my attempt to not live in, uh, in out of emotionality and out of just an automatic response, whether that means to flee or to freeze. Uh, and I don't know if that happens, number one, without really an identity rooted in the love of God and not in the perspective or the perceived perspective of other people. But yeah, that's something that um, I'm every day trying to cultivate more and more, being a calm presence. Yeah, and I love how you mentioned in there uh, the power of curiosity to facilitate calm presence. I have a good friend named John that I meet with almost every week, and he he talks a lot about uh, leaning into curiosity as an antidote to worry and anxiety. Mm. And uh, this whole different attitude, isn't it? When we can be open-minded, open-hearted, even uh, open to God and in, in understanding what what's going on here. What, what am I feeling? And what's this other person feeling? And where are you in this, Lord? Those curious questions. They, they really help facilitate that calm presence, don't they? Yeah. You know, in my own uh, life, you know, one of the questions that we ask at our church often is, you know, what does my reaction tell me about me? Yeah, good. And as I'm thinking about whether in a staff meeting or whether I'm leading a small group, um, you know, that's curiosity. At the same time, uh, 
the language that we use here is the language of being puzzled. Uh, so when someone does something or doesn't do something, uh, when someone doesn't respond to an email that I thought was really important, um, the language that we try to cultivate often here is I'm puzzled. And for us, those two simple words are a refusal to cast judgment and to live in curiosity that there might be something that I don't know uh, that this person might be experiencing. And so before I can live in the automatic reaction way, uh, let me insert that phrase there to avoid judgment. And it really is curiosity. Help me understand um, what's something that, that I might be missing in terms of why didn't you respond to the email? They might say, well, my phone broke and whatever, didn't have Wi-Fi. And and then you find out all sorts of reasons uh, that in many ways go against what we were thinking or what I was thinking at that moment. So curiosity, I think, is uh, it's one of those um, practices and virtues, I think, that are not really practiced in our mainstream culture. There's just so much assumption uh, that we live with, yeah. uh, but uh, I find it to be indispensable for calm presence and for really for flourishing relationships. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah, we do too. And we early on in our careers, were working in private practice with psychotherapy clients that would come to us. And we would so often do this kind of work and talking with people and helping people with this and their conflicts and their personal situations. And we appreciate the way that you are are helping the church with this on a larger scale, because it's so important. And even the way that you address trauma, I loved your speaking about in the book, your words saying that our trauma often endures out of severe emotional pain that hasn't been able to find a relational home where our wounds can be healed. And that's so true because that's, I mean, that is part of what we were doing in our private practice is providing that relational home and being an ambassadors of Christ in our ministry, soul shepherding, we're, we're shepherds after God's own heart to lead people to find that, that relational home. But the church really, that is our call. And you, and you're helping to train the church and to help the church wake up and to to recognize this. Mm, yeah, thank you, Christy. I think what we try to do, and my predecessor, a guy by the name of Pete Scazzaro, who got his doctorate in family systems theory, uh, with a particular focus on the genogram, uh, really was at least in our context, he pioneered uh, uh, connecting the work that you have done with the work of a local congregation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, part of our discipleship path at New Life is to help people explore their own uh, genograms and the resistance that I often get from pastors of what are you doing? Do you know what you're opening up? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we, we know we're opening up. And but what's, re- what's required for us to do this well is to have, you know, what this uh, New York psychiatrist Robert Solero said, uh, you know, developmental trauma happens when emotional pain cannot find a relational home. And so how can we create presence for one another so that when our emotional pain surfaces, there's an environment that is strong enough and tender enough to hold it with one another. And that should be the church, you know, a, a space where, you know, we, 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 before the pandemic in our building, there's a room that hosted a lot of AA and NA meetings. And on my way out of the, the, the office to go home, I'd sometimes sneak in and sit down or just stand outside the door and listen in. And what I found in those environments was lots of emotional pain, uh, the pain of addiction, and the space, a, a space that was tender enough to hold it. And I just would walk out and go, this is what we are called to be as the people of God and as the body of Christ. 
but in many ways, we're trying to take what you're doing uh, in uh, sessions of therapy and mining the wisdom of God in those spaces and just connecting it to uh, our ongoing daily spiritual formation. And so uh, as it relates to trauma in particular, that's one significant area that we've paid attention to. Thank you for that. It's so important. Really appreciate that. And then also the way, the importance of really being formed in God's love and being able to deeply receive his love. If we're going to be able to be a calm presence, mirror his love to others, we need to be learn to connect with, with God, the calm presence of all, where we receive his love, that, that true relational home, often that though we need ambassadors of him to help mm-hmm. us with that. But you, you talk very much about that piece of the relational and community, but also the contemplative life yeah. of prayer of being able to really abide in God's love and receive God's love. Would love for you to share a little bit about how you grew into those practices, but also at some point before we end, I would love it if you would share with our listeners a story about how God used your grandfather. Yeah, yeah. You know, the vision for you too. Yeah, he was like your first mentor in abiding, yeah, he said. Yeah. So yeah. Yes, a- absolutely. Well, in in terms of uh, you know, the contemplative tradition, I became a, a follower of Jesus in a very vibrant, was not contemplative, uh, loud Pentecostal congregation. And actually 15 family members came to faith in Jesus uh, on one night in 1999 in August. I was I was one of them, my parents and siblings and cousins and all the rest. Uh, and uh, but it was in college, really. My grandfather started sowing the seeds of that for me. And I'm happy to talk more about him. But I think what really oriented me in terms of the contemplative tradition is and uh, as a junior in high in college, one of our professors. Uh, who was teaching a spiritual formation class, brought us to a Franciscan monastery. And and, uh, throughout that weekend, at one point, he said, all right, for about six or seven hours, uh, you're going to stay in this one spot with uh, a journal and hear some questions and just be with God. And I thought, I'm I'm going to die here for six hours. I'm, I'm not going to be able to make it. And uh, there were times when I was napping. There were times where I was as bored as I could be. And then there were times of, I think, significant encounter. I had tasted something in, at solitude and silence that by the time I got back to the college campus, I found myself just wanting to get alone with God uh, and, and throughout the campus. And something ignited in me, a, a desire to simply be with God and to see prayer not as something that is um, marked by transactionalism, but communion, uh, that the goal wasn't to simply just get something from God as if God is this cosmic Venmo account, uh, but to really be with God. Mm-hmm. And uh, reading the Desert Fathers, you know, the writings of Henry Nouwen and Thomas Merton were really uh, significant for me in my early 20s. And mm-hmm. I have for the last 20 plus years have immersed myself in that kind of uh, literature and writings. But uh, I, I don't know how we can cultivate calm presence amidst a very hostile society. I don't know how we can live uh, out of our true center and the love of God without a contemplative uh, life. And so um, it's not easy for sure, because to live a contemplative life requires us to normalize boredom and to reframe distractions and to see God. Often our image of God needs to be healed 
which is why most people don't like to be in silence because all the images that they have of God, the distorted images they have of God tend to surface. And uh, so it's a dangerous thing to engage in contemplation because all of our, um, the false narratives and the unhealed areas of our lives tend to surface. But I don't know how we can walk in the way of Jesus without that kind of commitment to communion with the living God. Yeah, I experienced that this morning. I had a, a nightmare that woke me up middle of the night and made me scared. We have uh, aging parents dealing with uh, dementia. My, my dad died not too long ago, and then Christy's mom has that now. And so that was like the content of my my dream. And I I did just what you're talking about with being quiet and abiding in God's presence as I laid in bed. I mean, part of me wanted to just get up and get busy and forget about it. But, but I sat with the feelings and, and the dream and began doing some breath prayers with some, some deep breathing and, and reciting some verses in the Psalms and uh, just tried to be there in God's presence. And then I got in touch with, well, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that someday I would get dementia and not, not that would come. My life would end that way. I would be getting lost like the, my dad in my dream and, you know, all this kind of thing. And, and so, yeah, sometimes we think we, we learn contemplation often, like in a monastery, like you did, or on a retreat or that kind of a thing. But what you're really teaching uh, is that this is for everyday life. And th this is meant to be integrated with a, an active life of, of working and, and family and, and uh, ministry in church and loving people. And, and there's meant to be together. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we've tried to, I, I think in many ways in the last 35 years, in particular, the last 20 years of our congregation have let our people know, even though we live in the city that never sleeps, uh, this is not just a possibility. It is a necessity yes. to actually slow down to be with God. And that's the hope that this is not just a monastery thing or a mountaintop thing or a retreat thing, but in our day-to-day -day ordinary existence, we can slow down to be with God. It was N.T. Wright who said, as a matter of fact, in order to catch up to God, we have to slow down our lives. That paradox. And uh, I think that's absolutely right. Mm. So uh, one of your other messages, really how you bring us to Jesus, uh, which is uh, the best uh, and in good, beautiful and kind, you show us how Jesus himself enters into our wounds and carries mm. our wounds and uh, and then as we are with him and in, in, in our abiding in uh, emotional honesty and contemplative prayer and these types of things that we then, like Jesus, can become wounded healers. Mm -hmm. And I, we, we love that message. That's a soul shepherding message. Of course, you know, we're both drawing from Henry now. And so it's, uh, you know, a key source there. But uh, talks about your heart for uh, Jesus as a wounded healer for all of us. Yeah, you know, if there's anyone, I think, in the world who should have um, kind of a language for this, it should be followers of Jesus, because we worship a wounded Savior. Uh, yeah. We worship someone who understands pain and what it means to be wounded. And I've discovered in my own life that my inability to love well, or my inability to be present with others often stems from some woundedness that I haven't tended to. And uh, I, or, uh, you know, one of the stories that I tell in the book is there was um, one congregant that saw things very differently than I did on a number of issues. 
And we would bump heads three to four times a year in some significant ways. And as I was driving into the office one day to meet with him for like the fourth time and kind of to put him in his place and just say, listen, man, I'm tired of, we're coming back to the same issue again. Mm. Uh, One of our pastors called me and I just said, yeah, I'm meeting with this guy and I'm just very frustrated. Here we are again. And he began to share the significant amount of loss that this congregant had experienced. Mm. And he got into some of the really painful details of it. And when I had that bit of information, uh, it's not that boundaries still weren't important and that we had to get clear about expectations. Uh, But my heart towards this person was Mm. so much different when I knew the level of woundedness that he experienced. I think God looks at us as well. And Jesus looks at us and he knows our wounds and um, he tends to them, uh, knowing what it feels like to be wounded as well. And so, you know, when I when I think of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, when he sees his disciples after the resurrection and he still has his wounds in his hands, on his hands, you know, he goes to his, his disciples who in their own self are traumatized. They've seen their Lord killed before them and they failed him. And his first words to them are not, what happened? You know, why did you leave me like this? His first words to them are, peace be with you. And then he just so tenderly sends them out on mission saying, there's still a great purpose for you in spite of your wounds and in spite of your failures. And I, when I look at what we desperately need, I think that is what we need. A, a vision of Jesus from the gospel of John chapter 20, who understands what it means to be wounded but who heals out of that and doesn't wound. And um, contemplative prayer, as we immerse ourselves in the presence of this Jesus, I think that's the ultimate end. How do we take our own pain, our own wounds, and allow those things to be transfigured uh, in the presence of Jesus so that our very lives can be a healing presence in the world? So good. So appreciate the way that you join Jesus in his empathy for this man and softened your heart to him. And I'm sure that you have done that over and over again, as you tune into God's love, receive God's love for yourself, his empathy for you, for other people, and personally into your story, into their stories, and then participate with his love as a wounded healer yourself. Thank you, Rich. Thank you for being with us today. And we would love it if you would be willing to say a prayer for those in our soul shepherding community. Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. Lord, thank you for the gift of your presence. And for those within this community, uh, I pray first and foremost that they would have a vision of you that is informed by the wounded healer, Jesus. Uh, may the false images be healed. Uh, Lord, may everyone know who's listening to this, that their sense of identity is not rooted in how they perform or what they do, but by your love for them. And so may that become an even deeper reality that they live into. And Lord, may that reality lead to a kind of cultivation of presence with you, with themselves, with one another. Lord, our our world is fractured and fragmented, and what's desperately needed are women and men who know how to be present. And so I pray for those listening that a deeper capacity 
for presence would become available. Uh, and we know that this only happens by your spirit. And so we open ourselves up to you even right now and ask that your spirit would uh, give us a greater capacity for presence. For all these things, Lord, I pray your blessing over this community. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So friends, all of you who are listening, we've been talking with our friend Rich Velotis on his book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. And uh, Rich, gosh, we just so appreciate your message, appreciate you, your heart, your heart for Jesus, your heart for people. And thanks so much for being in conversation with us on Soul Talks. Well, thanks again for the kind invitation and hope we'll do it again at some point. We would love that. If this Soul Talk with Rich Velotis has stirred your heart and you're thinking, I, I want to do more of this work, I want to learn this way, we invite you to join us and dig deeper with Soul Shepherding. That's why we exist with our resources, our care, and our trainings to, to help you walk this out and grow in your formation in Christlikeness. You might want to check out the Soul Shepherding Institute because in the Institute, one of the things we do is look at your soul story, your formation in your family, your image of God, and help you really come to identify and unpack that. We also give you trainings and experiences with contemplative prayer. And we also give you opportunities each day for five hours of solitude and silence to experience the Lord and practice what you're learning and then come back in a soul shepherding group to process it in community, meet with a spiritual director, receive prayer. We'd love to have you join us in the Institute. You can also earn a certificate in the Ministry of Spiritual Direction. So check this out on soulshepherding.org. Just click on the Institute while you're there, check out the Soul Shepherding Network. This is the one-stop place for all things soul shepherding. We have all of our webinars in there. We have soul care groups in there led by our spiritual directors and hundreds of branded graphically designed tools that you can use for your personal devotions, your personal spiritual growth, and share with others in your small group, your clients, people in your church, people that you're helping. Easy to pass those out for them to dig in deeper into their emotional and spiritual health. Also, if you want to see the video of this conversation with Rich, that's available to our network members. We record the videos of these interviews and you can watch and, and see it all live there. We are so grateful to be following Jesus with you. God bless you. Friends, we are so excited to tell you about the new Enneagram and Emotions Assessment that we have developed. We have really invested resources in this, and it's a free tool for you, your friends, your whole church, your whole organization, your small group. The Enneagram and Emotions Assessment, this is an Enneagram assessment that's based on your emotions. It's different than any other assessment that we have found. We, every question is based on your experience uh, in life, in personality, in relationships, through your emotions. So every question asks you about your emotions and then sorts you according to the nine types. And we give you some free starter information to understand your type and the other types. So you'll want to go to soulshepherding.org slash Enneagram and get the Enneagram and Emotions Assessment. You will immediately get your results tabulated for you. You will immediately get uh, feedback on your top uh, types that you scored on. It will help you pit, narrow it down to which one is your best fitting home type. Uh, and this will be so helpful to you and your friends. So go to soulshepherding.org slash Enneagram for the free Enneagram and Emotions Assessment. 
Thank you for joining us on the Soul Talks podcast. To find out more about growing in your life and leadership, subscribe to the podcast and visit us at soulshepherding.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram 